Amen. And that song always speaks to me because it points to the Savior. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we look now at the third of the relationship qualities that belong to the child of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Likewise, just as a wife is in submission, and Christ is in submission, and we're in submission, you husbands dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now today we come to the idea that is uh, listed after submission, dwell with them with understanding. That is a uh, compound verb matched to a participle that is, uh, that means this, to dwell or to abide or to live and then it has attached as a prefix the soon prefix, meaning together, and then genosine with knowledge. So that in any good marriage, a husband is to live with his wife, to dwell with her according to what he knows about her and understands. Now the two are not the same. You understand that, don't you? that knowing someone is not necessarily always understanding. My wife does, she knows me, but she doesn't always understand me. And I know her, but I don't always understand her. But to dwell with knowledge means that in my marriage, I'm in a lifelong search to know who she is. And I'm in a lifelong growth quest for God to develop in me a spiritual sensitivity to who she is. But the principle is larger than that of a husband and wife. It applies primarily and perhaps even firstly to God himself. Once I decide to follow Christ, I begin a lifelong search to live with God, with gnosis, with knowledge. And the more I understand about God, then the better and the more satisfying, the more contented and the more meaningful is my relationship with God. Which is why when Moses was introduced to the reality of God, he said, oh God, Take me up on Mount Horeb and show me your glory. And then said, teach me your ways. Learning the ways of God is dwelling in a relationship with the Father that is constantly learning and constantly growing because we learn who God is and we learn his ways. And then if we take that principle and expand it one size larger, it is not only applicable in its primary sense to my wife or your spouse, wives, same thing is true for your husbands. It is not only applicable in a secondary sense to God, but in a, another larger sense, 
It is true of every single believer in the body of Christ. As God develops character in us, he wants to make us more sensitive to other people, more considerate, which is why your New International Translation uses the word considerate, live in consideration or with considerateness with your spouse. Selfishness takes many forms. It is not only eating the last piece of chicken on the platter, only to have somebody at the other end of the family table say, I only got one piece and you had four and you just ate the last one. <laughs> Selfishness is manifested and self-centeredness is manifested in many different ways. It is manifested when a child jerks something from another child that belongs to the other child. And every child has done this as a child. Amen? Did your boys ever do that, David? They've done that, have they? It is when we adults tear into somebody else with criticism and anger without any consideration for how it will affect that person. That is a form of selfishness and greed that goes beyond materialism. So the issue for all of us today is, as the Lord Jesus conforms us to his character, what is considerateness and how do we develop that and what does God do in our lives to develop a spirit that always puts the interests of Ronnie White before Mark Courts. It always puts the interests of the other person before our own. Now I want to take you to the best definition in all of the Bible of this and it is in Philippians chapter 2 and I want you to turn over because Paul to this because Paul was obviously feeling pressure for the Philippians spiritual state but he was also so in love with Timothy and so pleased with Timothy that in the, the meeting of the, the needs of the church at Philippi and the assigning of Timothy, he unleashes for us an insight into what it means to be considerate that is remarkable, a remarkable insight. Start with Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Now watch this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now mark that down. Number one, to live considerately or to dwell with knowledge is to first give esteem to others before we give it to ourselves. Now I don't think that he is saying we ought to be uh, codependent rescuers that are running around making other people dependent on us. That's not what he's saying. Let us always give esteem to somebody else and keep putting yourself down. I am nothing. I am nothing. I am nothing. When you came to Jesus, you are nothing. Take that by faith. It's settled. Amen? You are nothing until Christ came and made you everything you are. But he is saying that there is a remarkable spirit of the soul that always assigns a high value to another person, the person in the relationship. First, 
when I fall in love with Jesus Christ and he comes into my life, he gives me another polar. He gives me another center in my life. There is something to which I can attach other than myself and my own selfish ambition and conceit. I have something, someone in my life against which I can measure who I am. And so I am never the same. And as I understand who God is, it is then that I am able to understand who you are and give value to you. Now I'm going to make a strong statement. But a man who belittles others probably doesn't have a very high esteem of God or himself. Because considering others starts with a proper esteem or estimation of the character and the nature of God. I want to give exposition to that idea a little bit more. I'll come back to it. But the second thing is, is found in verse 4. Paul says, let each of you in Philippi look, not, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, he's not saying that as a Christian you are justified in always poking your nose in somebody else's business. I mean, there are enough of us with nose trouble don't add to the problem in the body of Christ. Do you understand? I mean, there are some things you don't ask and some things you don't tell. Amen? We learned that in being considerate of others. However, he does say that we should not only look out for our own interests, but we are constantly considering the interests of others. Now, a good example of this is every morning when I come in on Sunday morning around 8.30 or so, I meet the head of our maintenance and the head of our uh, housekeeping, and they tell me all the problems that are going on in the whole building in one minute. And uh, they tell me where all the leaks are, where the unsatisfied Sunday school teachers, and I'm telling you, that just gets your soul fired up to preach to the glory of God. That just, that'll do it every time. And then when I come in, I go back to pray with some men. And almost every Sunday, I can tell you who's here at 8.30 and who's not here at 8.30. I know what time you come in. I know where you sit. I know when you're absent. I know when you're on vacation. But uh, Robert Baldwin and Al Brewer usually sit right in, over here, right? This is where you pretty, always, pretty much always sit. And see... Now, they've both been going through some physical things. What'd you have, Robert? A knee replacement, was it? A knee replacement. And Al's been going through a bout with cancer. Now, as a Christian, I not one single Sunday morning, those men are there with their brides. Do I walk up that aisle and look at them? But what I don't immediately think, well, I wonder how his knee is coming along. And I wonder how the cancer is doing. And if I have time, I can stop. That's what I'm trying to learn as the most selfish among selfish humankind. I've had to ask God to help me work all my life to always look out for the interests of others. And that was a tough thing in a marriage. I've taken this woman to be my bride. And I must always look out first for her interests 
And then came a boy, and now I must look out for two other people's interests. And then came a girl, and I must look out for three other people's interests. And then I became a pastor, and I must look out for several other people's interests. And then we had another girl, and then another boy, and then they grew up and got married. And now there are 19 of us all in all. And I've got 19 interests to look out for, 18 other interests to look out for. Israel hath a fruitful vine, amen? I've been on vacation with all 19 for a week. And if I fall asleep while preaching, have mercy on me. <laughs> Paul said, I, I want you to understand this. Look out for not only your own interests, but to live considerately is to always consider the interests of the other person. Now, let me give you the third thing I think this means. Move over to his discussion of Timothy, because he's really on the same subject in verse uh, 19. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. I'm sending Timothy to tell me what is your spiritual condition. I asked one of you, one of our members, that last, last Sunday, I believe it was, I said, what's the state of your soul? And he looked at me like I was from another world. And I said, wait a minute. That is one of my jobs as a pastor. I am a sub-bishop of your soul, and I want to know how your soul is doing. How is your soul? One of the old Puritan preachers, Richard Baxter, had a church in England and uh, it was his practice five days a week to call the whole family, the father, mother, all the children to his study for an appointment. And he would inquire as to the spiritual state of every member of the family and of the family at large. And the mama couldn't lie because daddy was there. Daddy couldn't lie because mama was there. And neither mama nor daddy could lie because the kids were all there to tell the truth about what was going on in the home. And the first question Baxter asked was, is daddy leading the family in regular worship at home? Wow. So next week, we're going to start instituting this program. We're going to call every family in once a year, have a family quest on the state of the soul. Well, anyway, Paul was concerned. Now watch his response, verse 20. I have no one like-minded, like Timothy, who will sincerely care for your state. Now the third thing that it means to live considerately is to care for the state or the well-being of the other person. That's what it means. That's what I'm to do for my wife. That's what I'm to do for you. That's what I'm to do for the body of Christ. I care about the state of your well-being. I'm not in bondage to it. I'm not in bondage to making you happy. I am in bondage to making you holy. But I care about your state. And that is a characteristic of the Christian character trait of considerateness to care for your state. Then the fourth thing this means is in verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. The considerate man seeks the things of Christ first. 
He gives allegiance to Jesus first. He gives priority to God first. And everything else builds out from that. Now, think about this as a, as a principle of salvation when the new birth occurs. When I am saved, God the Holy Spirit comes to address me and to reveal my sin so that he can draw me to the Savior. You got that? That's the first thing. No man can call Jesus Lord except what? The Holy Spirit draw him. Okay, now that's, that's fundamental. But then what happens? God, how does God actually energize me to be changed? Okay, now something happens here. When he shows me who I am and my need, that is where the good news of God's love takes place. That is why the gospel doesn't start with the fact that we're sinners. If you've ever taken Share Life, you've heard my story. When I went to Bible college, I was, because I played the trumpet, I was assigned to, a, to conduct a street meeting in Largo, Florida. And my job was to blow the trumpet and to get a crowd to the street meeting, and only the seniors could preach. And I was a lowly 17-year-old freshman. And so I blew the trumpet. And you can get a crowd blowing the trumpet in a public square. And one of our seniors preached, and he said, now, you stand around here, and the, the students who are with me have some good news. And I'll never forget this. There was, there was a fellow who came up to me and said, what's the good news? And I didn't know any gospel plan except the Roman road. That's the only one I knew. And guess where the Roman road starts? Do you know where it starts? He said, what's the good news? And I said, Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And I will never, ever in my life, if I live to be 117, forget the response. It changed my whole approach to witnessing. He said, sin? He said, you had some good news. And suddenly I realized that the good news doesn't start with me as a sinner. It starts with God as a lover. God loves me. And when cognitively the good news of the gospel that God loves me hits my cognitive mind, it, it unleashes something in me. It's very much like what happened when we were teenagers and, and a girl would have a crush on us. And, and Patty would tell Alice, who would tell Jill, who would tell Allison, who would tell me, did you know that Patty has a crush on you? And when I found out Patty had a crush on me, guess what that did to me inside? I thought, hmm, I better look into this. See? And when the news that God loves me is cognitively received, it starts a process in which I go to look at God and everything God wants to do in our lives starts right here. When I have any expression of love back to God. And I've come to believe that every character trait that God wants to build in our lives builds on my loving God. That is why Paul says here, look, uh, the, the, way, the way you get to be considerate for others is to love Jesus. And John puts it this way, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you're lying. <laughs> because everything God wants to do in our lives starts with loving God. Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is loving others. Is that what he said? No, 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 no. He started with what? You remember? 
The first thing is to love God. And when we love God, all other character traits in the Christian life flow from loving God supremely. Jesus put it this way, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. And there, are, there is a score probably of instances where everything God wants to do starts with our loving God. That's why he said, most people seek their own. That's why they don't have any interest in others. That's why they don't consider others. That's why they don't think like others think. They don't respect the rights of others. They don't make adjustments to others. They don't make others' needs their needs. They don't take others into consideration when they're speaking. They just say what comes to their mind and if it hurts your feelings, tough, you need a thicker skin. We never learn or seldom, rarely learn how to consider the feelings and the needs of others. We rarely consider the consequences of what we do and say in others. And it all begins with loving God and pointing towards him, seeking the things of Christ and knowing him. Now, those are the four characteristics of considerateness. Now, I want to share with you, because I think the model for how we are to treat each other is in the relationship of Jesus to God. And let's go back to the Gospel of John and I want to show, with you at least, show you at least six blessings that will be yours when you and I learn in the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell with each other with consideration or with knowledge, with considerateness. The first is found in John, which is the great record of Christ's relationship to the Father. And it starts in John 6, 38. Let me suggest this. The first blessing of living considerately is the blessing of a shared purpose or a mutual purpose. John chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now mark this down. Whether we're applying this to marriage or I'm applying this to friendship or whether I'm applying this to my relationship to God, the first blessing that comes from living in consideration of others is the blessing of a shared purpose. Jesus was committed to cooperating and participating in the will of God. He was a separate entity, but he had no separate will. He was a separate person of the Trinity, but he did not have his own isolated will. One of the ways that we reflect God in our lives, and one of the ways that we show why God created us, is when we learn how to share a purpose, a will, a yoke. Perhaps Jesus put it back to us most reasonably this way. He said, uh, take my yoke upon you. And when you do that, what will happen? He said, you will learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
We haven't got our other piano back yet, have we, Larry? It's coming. One of our members graciously gave the money to rework that huge grand we have up here, which cost us, what, about 20000 in 1972? And now is $75,000. But we're having it completely rebuilt like a brand new piano, and it will be uh, less than 10 even, I think it will be. So this is a replacement. You can tell when I play this, it sounds a little tinny. Any piano sounds a little tinny when I play it. I know chords in F and C and D flat. That's uh, and G, a few in G, and I can play. If you can sing the song in one of those keys, I can play it. But the last Wednesday night before my heart attack five years ago, I sat down at that piano, some of you were here, and I sang a song that said, whatever it takes to draw closer to you, Lord, that's what I'm willing to do. I, I want to tell you something, folks. I didn't forget that. I read this week what I, I wrote in my prayer journal to myself on Monday in St. Louis after that happened. And I was reminded that I had just sung that. There is a cost when you share purpose. There is a cost, ma'am, when you decided to follow Jesus, and there was a cost when you decided to follow your husband. But there's tremendous joy in working together. How do I explain that? How do I explain what happens when uh, Chuck Peters was chairman of the deacons for a year and we met regularly and prayed and fellowshiped and talked. What happened when Alan Brown was chairman of the deacons for a year and we met together and prayed and shared purpose and will? What happens when uh, I can remember when Guy Hip came at age 18 in 1970 and started at $25 a week working on our staff and he was worth every penny of it. You can count on that. And uh, as, a, as a student assistant, and since 1970, except for three years at seminary and two years when he backslid in a church in Florida, uh, except for that, we have worked together. And uh, he understands my purpose and my vision. What happens when two people understand purpose and vision? How do you explain that? How do you explain the joy of knowing that somebody else understands what you're trying to do? One of the greatest joys of marriage is there's somebody who understands me. I know you don't always, but there's somebody who almost, let me qualify that, always understands me. And in marriage, in the body, in any ministry, there has to be a shared purpose. And that is a fantastic blessing because you never need to feel you're stuck out here by yourself. When Elijah was depressed, what he thought was there was nobody else who understood what he was trying to do. And God said, relax, I got 7,000 others that I can count on. And it blew Elijah's mind. Secondly, the second blessing that the son and the father had in their relationship was the blessing of mutual knowledge. Would you turn over in your Bibles to one of the most insightful verses in John chapter 7 and verse 17? 
Jesus had just said in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone wants to do his will, if anyone desires to do the will of God, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now here is a promise veiled in an explanation. If I want to know more about God, let me do his will. And as I practice sharing his will and his purpose, then I will naturally learn more about him. In fact, earlier in John chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus had turned off uh, a crowd. Uh, he, he had said, the scripture says, he made, he had, in verse 25 rather, he had no need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was in man. And for that reason, he did not commit any more of himself to them because he knew them. Verses 24 and 25. One of the great things about longtime friendships and long-time relationships in the body of Christ is that we get to know and trust each other. And what really grieves me sometimes in the body of Christ is when Christians don't, who've known each other a long time, don't trust each other. I've known you a long time, and I'm going to cut you a lot of slack. And the longer I've known you, the more slack I'm going to cut you. Right? Because the more I'm going to trust you. Because I, the more surprised I am that you would do me in or that you would you would reverse or whatever. And so Jesus says, look, if you want to know God, do his will. If you want to do his will, then you will know more of the doctrine and then you do that and then he'll teach you more and then you do that and he'll teach you more. So many of us want instant maturity. I'm going to come to church four times in a row. Imagine that. And now suddenly I'm going to be a grade A blue chip Christian. Brother, you can be saved in a minute. You can be filled with the spirit in a minute, but it takes years to mature in Jesus. And there is no instant maturity. But if you want to get to know a girlfriend, if you want to get to know a boyfriend, teenagers, if you want to get to know someone, you must let them know your will and your purpose. And you must commit yourself to it. And knowledge comes as we learn to share that purpose. The third thing that comes out of living considerately is that we learn to work for the honor of the other person. Now note verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus said, when you share the will and the purpose of someone, and you get to know someone, there is no problem honoring someone. It just absolutely befuddles me that a man could be married to a woman for 10 years and still not know how to honor her. Not having learned enough about her or having shared enough purpose that he knows how to work for the honor of the other person. We have to work at honor. I'm not going to preach last Sunday's message again. But we have to learn how to work to honor the other person. And Jesus said, as I get to do the will of God, and as anyone else gets to know the will of God, then you will seek the glory of the other person in the relationship. And that is why a wife loves to build up her husband. 
That is why a husband loves to build up his wife. Amen, ladies? <laughs> and that is why Jesus loved to give glory to God. Everything he did was to give glory to God. I like to give glory. It doesn't cost anything to give glory. Did you know that? It doesn't cost anything to honor someone else. We, we, we ought to be giving more honor because the more we give, then the more we have to give. It's the way it works in life. I'm going to embarrass him. But Tony, stand up up there just a minute. Would you stand up? Please. Now, there's a guy who hides behind that desk working every Sunday to make sure that you can hear in the best way possible with this system. And he works hours and hours that you have no idea he works. And uh, when he came, we were moving into that new uh, dining room downstairs. And he spent days and nights and nights and days, right, Tony, down there, and made sure that we got the best system possible, which is a wonderful system. You can hear anywhere in that dining room. If you've been down there for a program, you know that. And see, he, he rarely ever gets honored. He, he gets paid, but honor is different from pay. I mean, we give him $135,000 a year to do this job. And, and uh, some people will say, why should we honor him? Well, we ought to honor him because of his work. But see, it doesn't cost me anything to honor him. I, I don't mean to embarrass him. I do want to honor him. You need to know who he is. And you need to know what he does. And you need to know that he could end this worship service in a heartbeat. He can cut me off in a moment. Did you know that? And I want to be on his good side. I've never seen the mic fail when his wife sang. Did you know that? <laughs> Actually, I've never seen the mic fail when he's up there. Thank you, Tony. And we do honor you. Now, here's the fourth blessing that comes. Next is in chapter 8, verse 16. Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. But here's one of the most remarkable statements Jesus made. I want you to outline it. If I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. That is a remarkable statement. Now you think about that. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that because of my fellowship with the Father, because I live in consideration of God, my decisions, my judgments are true and righteous. There is something blessed about a man who does not live independently of everyone else. Your wife can contribute marvelously to your decisions. Learning to live considerately will improve your decision-making capacity and bless you in ways you had no idea of. I make very few decisions, but I don't run them by my wife. She has good intuition about people. And I, I value that judgment. Do you value that judgment? I'm constantly going to the staff because I respect and love the staff. And I say, T give me feedback on this. Tell me where I'm, I'm going to be blindsided on this. Right, Don? You've heard me say that to you many a time. To Gary Chapman, to Don Manda, any, to some of the younger staff. To Don Schmidt, help me. I'm, don't let me be blindsided. Because when I'm living in consideration of others, iron sharpens iron. There is something that two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. The wisdom of two or three 
improves. And Jesus said it this way, I live in such fellowship with my Father, and he is constantly with me that when I make judgments, my judgments are true, which is a remarkable blessing of learning how to live considerately of others. Can I give you the fifth one? And it is that living considerately is, uh, brings a blessing of presence in chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Isn't that neat? That's a neat promise. Jesus said, the Father never leaves me alone. When I learn to live in consideration of the Father's will and I please Him, His presence is always appropriate with me. His presence is always manifested to me. If you're lacking a sense of the presence of the Father, if you're lacking in your time of trial or adversity a sense of God's redeeming, graceful presence and merciful presence, can I encourage you to go back and ask, am I living in consideration of the Father's will? Am I thinking about what God wants? Am I speaking what God would be pleased with? Am I saying what God is pleased with? Am I doing what God is pleased with? Am I doing fulfilling the will of God? Because when I please the Father, it promotes His presence. And I have the blessing of people when I live in consideration of them, they want to be around me because I'm considerate of them and I want to be around you when you're considerate of me. It's a natural thing when we learn to live in the body of Christ. Finally, let me give you one other one. Turn to John 14, 21. Jesus gives us a clue about love. Another blessing of living considerately is the blessing of love. For he says in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. We demonstrate our love by our obedience. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And when my Father loves him, I will love him. And when I love him, I will manifest myself to him. It is what Coach Rich, Rick Patino of the Kentucky Wildcats calls the circle of life. There's a circle of love and life going on. And when I get in on that circle, I get where God can love me. And then when I'm where God can love me, I want to obey him. And when I obey him, Jesus loves me. And when Jesus loves me, he manifests his presence to me. And when he manifests his presence to me, he energizes me to go on when I don't have any reason to go on. And then the Father loves me. And when the Father loves me, I obey the Father. And then Jesus loves me and manifests himself to me. And when Jesus manifests his presence to me, then I love him so much I want to go on and obey him. Which is why I say... Every character trait you need in the Christian life starts with loving God. And that is why Jesus said it is the first and great commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, 
Some years ago, I was invited by Tal McNutt to the Romney Bible Conference in Romney, New Hampshire. I had only been through New Hampshire a couple of times on my way to Maine and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia when I went up there for two or three trips to preach. When I was a young preacher and nobody wanted me around here, I had to go somewhere where somebody wanted me. There weren't many preachers. And uh, I went to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and preached meetings all over the back country in the wintertime. Imagine preaching a revival and your rally day crowd is 18. They didn't have anybody to play the pump organ and I played the trumpet and the pump organ at one time. That's right, I did that. You don't believe that? I'll show you sometime. I did it. And I had to lead the singing and play the pump organ. And, and uh, there was an old man. He said, I'd take the offering, but my arthritis is bad today. And I even had to take my love offering. Did you know that? I, I think it was $27 for a two-week meeting. But I got to preach every night. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you're not interested in, in that song and dance, are you? When I went to Romney, he said, I want to show you something. Have you ever heard of the old man on the mountain? I said, yeah, I've heard of that. He said, I, I want to take you. Give me your afternoon. I want to take you and show you where that is. There's a legend that an old farmer grew up as a boy at the foot of that mountain. And he um, would get up every day, his house pointed straight at the profile on the top of that mountain of an old man. And when people would come to the village, they would ask, where's the man, old man on the mountain? And he would show them the mountain. And he lived there all of his life, and he was an old man. And one day somebody came and said, I want to see the old man on the mountain. And the old man pointed up there at the profile, the craggy profile on the top of the mountain. And the visitor, the tourist, looked at the man's profile. And the face of the man over the years had conformed perfectly to the profile on the mountain. And the tourist said, oh no, there is the face of the old man on the mountain. It's on you. He had looked so long and hard at that mountain that he had become like that mountain. And one of the greatest truths I ever learned in the Christian life is that I become what I love. And the more I love God, the more I become like him. And the more I love Christ, the more I become like him. And that principle is what the Holy Spirit uses to build consideration and kindness into our lives. In the marriage, in the home, in the body, and in the world. So that there is no mistaking when people want to see Christ. Like the old man on the mountain, they see Jesus in our personality profile. Amen. And amen, and amen, which means so be it. Let it be so. Let's stand. Father in heaven, make us like Jesus.
and teach us how to consider the needs, the thoughts, the feelings, the hurts, the pains, the hearts of others. And if there's someone here today who's never begun that journey to know you and to love you, draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.